Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's his second day as a guard in cell block four at the Western Maryland Correctional Institute, and he has been tasked to clean out the cell of an odd little man. Cell Block 4 held inmates in protective custody, and he was beginning to understand why the inmate in Cell 10 had to be here. As he rounded the corner, the smell hit him, and then, well then, he saw Haddon Clark. It took him a minute to process what he was seeing. Perched on the edge of his toilet, Haddon was leaping from one fuzzy meat to the next, using his teeth to pick these moldy little pieces off of what looked like a long piece of dental floss. The guard just shook his head and wondered what he'd gotten himself into. This is the story of Cannibal Brothers, Bradfield and Haddon Clark. I'm your host, Caroline, a university biology professor and true crime junkie. Thanks for joining me on my quest to understand evil. Last time we left Haddon in 1995 after his mother, Flavia, had died of breast cancer. So let's catch up with Haddon on September 26, 1999. 250 prospective jurors assembled, ending up with a jury of seven women and five men to try Haddon for the, the murder of Michelle Dore, even though they didn't have a body. Haddon had been telling anybody that would listen, or even people who didn't want to listen in jail, about how he killed Michelle Dore. So there were a, a, a plethora of jailhouse snitches that came forward and testified against Haddon. The prosecution actually defended the use of jailhouse snitches because of this no hurting children code of the bad guys, right? So so who are the, in prison, who are the ones that get hurt very quickly? Well, it's police and child molesters. During the trial, Haddon's lawyer tried to shift the blame to Carl Dorr. But we know that Carl is not the one that killed his daughter, that he just underwent some own, his own psychotic breakdowns after his daughter disappeared. As the prosecution brought up the convicts, one of them described Michelle's murder in so much detail that Haddon became, buckle yourself up for this one, became so excited that when he went to go to the bathroom, he began to masturbate in the bathroom. But the bailiff or the sheriff that was tending to him stopped him before he could take that to completion. So the jury convicted Haddon of second-degree murder. On October 20th, 1999, Haddon's attorney went through Haddon's childhood and his various impairments, such as physical injury to the brain, abuse from the father, and we'll talk about this at the end of the episode here. But Haddon was sentenced to 30 years, added to his 40-year sentence for the murder of Laura Hotling. In November of 1999, Haddon was um, sent to the Western Correctional Institute. So was a man named John Patrick Truitt. On the bus on the way to this new prison, John Patrick Truitt was minding his own business when a strange man who had a terrible odor said to him, I know who you are. You're You're Jesus. Please swear on the Bible that you're him. Once they got to WCI, the Western Correctional Institute, Haddon and John Patrick Truitt were put in the same cell. Haddon was eagerly waiting for him when he came in, and he told John Patrick Hewitt that God had visited him 
and told him that we, he would be sending his only son to come live with Haddon. So Haddon thought John Patrick Hewitt, John Patrick Truett was actually Jesus. Truett just basically ignored Haddon until Haddon started talking about how he had slit Michelle Dorr's throat and he described where he had buried her. Well, Truett called his wife, who then called the police, told, called his wife and told her what Haddon had told him. His wife called the police, who then called the FBI, and then it was not long before they were trying to dig up Michelle's tiny skeleton, but the police couldn't find where she was. When Truett told Haddon that he might have to testify against him someday, Haddon said that it would be God's will. So who is John Patrick Truett? John Patrick Truett, who I will refer to from now on for the rest of this episode as Jesus, he was born in 1952, and he's been in prison for most of his adult life. He'd grown up in South New Jersey in an area called Delmarva, and Delmarva is um, right where Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia all meet, and he grew up near the Purdue chicken farms in the 1960s. When he was just eight years old, he was hit in the head. Um, by an adult with a baseball bat. He had to have 200 stitches, and this resulted in seizures and severe headaches for the rest of his, at least his childhood, and on into his adult years as well. His parents couldn't afford his medication, so he began to self-medicate with marijuana and other illegal drugs before he was even 10 years old. Jesus's parents were poor. His father was a severe alcoholic. He went on to fail the fourth grade, the sixth grade, the seventh grade, and the eighth grade, and he dropped out in ninth grade. In addition to his father being an alcoholic, Jesus's mother sexually molested him as a kid. She tried to keep her hold over him as he became a teenager. She, once she even pulled a gun out on a date of his. So this guy was dealt a pretty bad hand from the beginning. As a teen, he sold weed, um, and he used the money to fund his various bands. By the 70s, he'd moved on from weed and other less potent illegal drugs. He moved on to PCP or angel dust. On June 28th, 1974, he'd been on PCP for three weeks straight. PCP is made from parsley and horse tranquilizer. Used over an extended period of time, it can lead to persistent speech problems, depression, anxiety, and memory loss. Some users might even experience flashbacks in which a sensation or hallucination may recur days, weeks, or even months after the drug has been taken. Along with this, um, users also will often suffer from anxiety and they'll withdraw from social situations because of this anxiety and, and severe paranoia. Users will often suffer from chronic and severe anxiety and depression, possibly leading to attempts of suicide. Sometimes toxic psychosis will appear, um, and they can appear in chronic users who do not have a prior history of any psychiatric disturbances. The symptoms of toxic psychosis are aggression or hostile behavior, behavior paranoia, delusional thinking, and auditory hallucinations. So Jesus had been on PCP for three weeks. So just imagine his state of mind. On June 28th, 1974, he went into a saddle shop where the owner owed him a lot of money after buying drugs on credit. Um, Jesus shot the owner, a man named Edwin Franklin Rice, in the chest twice and then in the back. Um, finally, he fired one final shot into Rice's head. Jesus noticed that there was a witness. So instead of killing the man, he abducted him. This man's name was Trivets. And he made the man drive him towards Ocean City. But Jesus got out of the car. 
Tribbetts was able to ID Jesus, and the police arrested him at his apartment in Ocean City, charging him with murder and kidnapping. He was given life in prison. Jesus was young when he was first put into prison. He was just 24 years old. He was sexually assaulted his first day in general population, and he requested that they put him in solitary confinement. By 1989, he had been in prison for 15 years. He was about 37 and had a record of good conduct, charitable work, and education. But his parole was denied, and it continued to be denied for years and years. This is a good place to stop to hear a word from our sponsors. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So over the course of the next year or so, the detectives would pick up Haddon and um, Jesus and take them out on excursions looking for various bodies. In January of 2000, the detectives picked up Haddon. They took him to where he had buried Michelle under a mattress. So they finally had Michelle's body to put to rest. Haddon wouldn't talk before they went on their field trip, and the detectives thought it was because he was Kristen Bluefin and that Kristen Bluefin would not let him. So who is Kristen Bluefin? Kristen Bluefin was Haddon's alter ego. She was um, the one who dressed in women's clothing, and she had an evil daughter named Nicole, and it was Kristen and Nicole that were the evil ones, not Haddon, according to Haddon anyway. Haddon claimed to have murdered many, many victims, although the only bodies they ever found were Laura Hotlings and Michelle Doors. Some of the possible murders of Haddon, according to Adrian Havel in Born Evil, Haddon may have been responsible for an unsolved murder of a woman who was found in the dunes with no head and no hands, and she was referred to as Lady of the Dunes. Haddon had a map that showed or he had a he had a map to the area where her body had been found and he also had drawn he loved to draw pictures and i post i'll post some of those on the website havel also speculates that hadn't killed a 16 year old girl named kathy malcolmson from stowe massachusetts on august 13 1985 a little nine-year-old girl named sandra pryor from wayland massachusetts who disappeared on october 9 1985 and possibly, and this may have been Haddon or could have been his brother, 
Um, a girl named a little girl who was 12 years old named Doreen Vincent from Meridian, Connecticut, who disappeared on June 5th, 1988. But who will really ever know? Because no additional bodies were ever found, no matter how many times Haddon would go out taking the FBI out on wild goose chases looking for them. What went so wrong in the Clark household that it produced cannibal serial killers? To answer that question, we have to begin with the parents and grandparents. Bradfield and Haddon's grandfather was a football player who fought in two wars. So let's start with grandfather Silas's football days at university. In the early 1900s, football was arguably much more dangerous than it is today. Players wore leather helmets that offered little to no protection. And in 1914, Silas suffered a con concussion that was so severe he couldn't play football any longer. A 2017 study by Boston University indicated that contemporarily, 99% of all professional football players... 99% of all professional football players, 91% of college players, and 21% of high school players have chronic traumatic encephalopathy. CTE results from multiple concussions and from the sheer jostling of the brain inside of the skull. The amount of impact that occurs during a tackle. The power of a tackle at 4.56 seconds running 40 yards can produce 1,600 pounds of force. So to put this in context, a knee will dislocate or ligaments will tear at just over 500 pounds of force. Couple the force of an average tackle with the amount of G-force exerted on the head and neck, which can range from 30 to 60 up to as high as 150 Gs, right, just on the head and neck from being tackled. So let's put that into context. A roller coaster will hit six Gs and a fighter jet will hit nine Gs. So we're talking 30 to 60 Gs up to 150 Gs. That's a lot of force on a very delicate little structure, the brain. It's a squishy, if you've never seen a real brain, it is, um, it is, it has some firmness to it, but it is fairly squishy. And it can be damaged really easily. If you grab it too hard, you can tear pieces of it. Not that I, that sounds terrible that I've grabbed brains. I've dissected a lot of human bodies in my, in my days as a college professor. And so I've seen a lot of human brains, real human brains. Okay, so what is CTE exactly? Well, your brain and your nervous system is made up of neurons. Right? Neurons conduct the electrical signals that are required to elicit an action potential, so to cause a change in a target membrane. A neuron is made up of a soma or a body, and dendrites, which bring signals to the neuron, and an axon, which takes signals away from the neuron to an effector organ, so to a muscle, to an endocrine organ, to another nerve. The axon is made up of structural proteins called microtubules, and the microtubules are stabilized with proteins called tau proteins. The jostling of the brain causes the microtubules of the axon to break, which releases the stabilizing tau proteins, allowing them to find each other and form clumps throughout the brain. Now, your brain's not fully developed until you're at least 25 years old. So this brain jostling during high school and college football is happening to a frontal lobe that's not done maturing. For some perspective on this, Aaron Hernandez, who committed suicide at age 27, he murdered his first victims at age 23. He had the most severe case of CTE they had ever seen. It's clear that he had poor impulse control and critical thinking abilities, likely due in part to his age and in great part to his CTE. 
Now, I have no idea if Silas Clark had CTE, but if I had to wager a guess, I would say that it's highly likely that he did. Silas also fought in two wars, the Mexican Border War and World War I. It has been estimated that 60% of World War I vets suffered from shell shock, which is kind of the old term for PTSD. Again, I have no idea if Silas Clark suffered from PTSD, but based on these numbers and the fact that Silas engaged in hand-to-hand combat, it's not hard to make that leap. Now, PTSD is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation, but what happens to the brain of someone with PTSD? First, the amygdala, which is responsible for our fear response, our flight or flight response, increases in volume. What that does is it puts the brain in a state of hyperarousal. The reason um, why often people with PTSD have an abnormally sensitive startle reflex. The amygdala also plays a role in cataloging and storing away memories. Where the memory is stored is dependent upon the emotional response that accompanied the event. The amygdala is influenced by testosterone and is generally larger in males, which explains why men tend to be more aggressive. Next is the hippocampus, a structure involved in the formation of new memories. Think of Dory from um, Finding Nemo. She had no short-term memory, and that was likely that's likely a result of damage to the hippocampus. So as the hippocampus decreases in size, then there's difficulty in forming new, more positive memories. In a PTSD brain, the hippocampus decreases in volume, which impacts the ability to replace the negative memory associated with the trauma with new positive memories. You also see a smaller hippocampus in people with severe depression and schizophrenia. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. The prefrontal cortex decreases in volume in those with PTSD. And it's the prefrontal cortex that um, is in charge of fear fear, (laughs) fear extinction and where impulse control lies. Based on studies of Korean War and Iraqi War vets, anywhere from 30 to 80% of vets will present with PTSD, some level of PTSD. So what impact does PTSD have on the family? Well, according to a 1986 article by Rosenheck, four out of five children of war vets indicated that their daily lives were negatively impacted due to their parents' PTSD. A 1993 article by Harkness posited that a vet's parenting style can be controlling overprotecting and demanding as a result. Further, a 2001 study by Davidson and Meller revealed that adult children of Vietnam vets indicated much higher levels of dysfunction in their adult lives. In a 2018 article titled Psychometric Properties of the Mississippi Scale for Combat-Related PTSD Based on Veterans' Period of Service, of the 202 Korean War vets who were assessed, 74% presented with PTSD. In a 2014 study titled High Risk of Military Domestic Violence on the Home Front, 80% of, PTS, 80% of vets with PTSD reportedly engaged in at least one act of violence in the year prior to the assessment. 
Well, why am I telling you all of this? Well, it's likely that Silas suffered from PTSD, and those combat vets with PTSD are much more likely to engage in domestic violence. So before I continue on and get into all of the reasons that the Clark brothers were so evil, I want to be clear that in no way am I trying to make excuses for or attempting to gain sympathy for these monsters. Instead, I'm simply trying to understand why and how the evil came to be. Bradfield and Haddon's father, Haddon Clark Sr., joined the military at age 16 to fight in World War II. He went to Shanghai, China, and he even stayed in Asia after the war ended. Haddon got married and started a family, but decided to go to Korea to fight, leaving behind his wife and young son, Bradfield. Haddon Sr. fought in two wars, and it's likely that he also suffered from PTSD. Now, that does not mean that he was necessarily violent with his children, but he and Flavia would get into physical altercations in front of the children, and Haddon would later report that he was physically abused by the Haddon Sr. So both Haddon and his wife Flavia were severe alcoholics. Having an alcoholic mother is particularly detrimental as mother, especially in those days, is often the primary caregiver. This puts the child in a constant state of stress as they learn to cope. In a 2007 study in the Indian Journal of Psychiatry, the authors reported that children of alcoholics were not only at higher risk of developing alcoholism themselves, but they were at higher risk of impulsivity, hyperactivity, and ADHD. Another 2007 study in biological psychiatry indicated that children of alcoholics have decreased brain volume by about 4% due to environmental factors, exposure to alcohol in utero, poor diet, and unstable parental relationships. So was there generational violence happening in the Clark family? It seems likely. When children are harshly disciplined, spanking, threatening, yelling, screaming, etc., in response to misbehavior, this is correlated to higher levels of child externalizing behavior, which is characterized by poor impulse control and oppositional, aggressive, or delinquent behavior. Children of alcoholics or of parents with other mental disorders are at much higher risk of developing reactive attachment disorder. According to a 2019 article published by the University of Turku, 20% of children with RAD, reactive attachment disorder, have parents with a psychiatric diagnosis of alcoholism or drug addiction. Another 17% of RAD children have a mother with depression and a father with alcohol or drug abuse. So what is RAD? In adults, RAD manifests as detachment, withdrawal from connections, and inability to develop and maintain significant relationships, and inability to show affection, control issues, anger problems, impulsivity, inability to fully grasp emotions, and feelings of loneliness and emptiness. RAD in adults is often comorbid, comorbid with anxiety and depressive disorders, dissociative disorders, and personality disorders. So how does RAD develop? I believe it occurs because of a lack of bonding with the primary caregiver during the critical first months of a child's life. There's a hormone called oxytocin. You probably recognize this hormone as the one that stimulates uterine contractions in childbirth. Oxytocin is integral in establishing a connection between the primary caregiver, usually the mother in this case, and baby. Oxytocin assists with the milk letdown reflex, but it's also responsible for, for bonding. The eye contact and skin-to-skin -skin contact made during nursing stimulates the release of oxytocin by mother and by baby, and this further solidifies the bonding between the primary caregiver and baby. So Haddon Sr. and Flavia were both alcoholics who were violent with one another and likely violent with the children. 
When children are exposed to domestic violence or are the victims of verbal, physical, or sexual abuse, the structure of the brain changes. Haddon's father verbally abused him, and verbal abuse is associated with increased volume of gray matter in the auditory cortex and diminished integrity of the the arcuate fasciculus. So basically, because, yeah, everybody knows where the arcuate fasciculus is, right? Um, If you want to see where it is, you can go to my website, www.skb.com, and I have a brain blog that I outline all the parts of the brain and I have them all identified on actual real brains. Basically, this means that there's an increase in the ability to process incoming auditory information, but a decrease in the ability to properly interpret that incoming information. The child's brain is vulnerable to maltreatment throughout childhood but particular areas are more vulnerable at certain ages. The hippocampus is susceptible to trauma between ages 3 and 5 and 11 and 15. The amygdala is particularly vulnerable from ages 9 to 13. A decrease in hippocampal volume and increase in gray matter of the amygdala are associated with PTSD. The inferior longitudinal fasciculus, and again, if you want to see where that is, just check out the um, pictures on my website. The inferior longitudinal fasciculus is most vulnerable from ages 7 to 9 and 11 to 15. And decreased volume in the the inferior longitudinal fasciculus is associated with thought disorders and cognitive impairments. Damage to the inferior longitudinal fasciculus is further associated with secondary realization or alterations in perception. And it may constitute the physiological basis for visual hallucinations and socio-emotional impairments in schizophrenia, as well as emotional difficulty seen in like autism spectrum disorders. The prefrontal cortex is always vulnerable, but is particularly susceptible to maltreatment from ages 13 to 18. 50 to 100% of children who witness domestic violence suffer from PTSD. Further, childhood maltreatment is associated with decreased centrality, which is connectedness or of importance or connectedness or importance in regions that are involved in emotional regulation, the ability to accurately attribute thoughts or intentions to others, and with enhanced centrality in regions involved with internal emotional perception, self-referential thinking, and self-awareness. These regions include the anterior cingulate gyrus, which connects the amygdala and the hypothalamus, which are both parts of the limbic system. And it's thought to be involved in decision-making and overall affect and, in general, the management of social behavior. Also affected is the temporal pole, which is an, uh, an area in the anterior temporal lobe of the brain. And this is involved in social cognition and theory of mind. So what's theory of mind? Well, theory of mind is the ability to attribute thoughts, intentions, and feelings to other to others. Childhood maltreatment is associated with increased centrality of areas responsible for self-awareness. One area is the um, precuneus, which is part of an area called the default mode network. And this is involved in self-referential thinking. And self-referential thinking is the tendency to view innocuous stimuli as having a specific meaning for the self and is associated with narcissistic personality disorder. The individual with narcissistic personality disorder tends to exhibit long-term pattern of exaggerated feelings of self-importance and excessive craving for admiration, and they will struggle with empathy. There's also increased centrality in the anterior insula, which contains an interoceptive representation that provides the basis for all subjective feelings from the body. When this area is activated in conjunction with the anterior cingulate gyrus and together, they seem to function as the limbic sensory and motor cortices 
that respectively engender feelings through the insula and motivations through the cingulate gyrus that constitute any emotion. A final piece of this is the ventromedial prefrontal cortex has somatic markers, which are feelings in the body that are associated with emotions, such as rapid heart rate and anxiety, nausea, and disgust. The somatic marker hypothesis states that emotional processes guide our behavior and decision-making. So let's stop here and take just one more quick break to hear a word from a couple more sponsors. So we've got a lot of stuff going on so far. But in addition to all of this, the Clark family moved a couple times a year. This would undoubtedly have a negative impact on the burgeoning family. Moving that often can have deleterious effects on children and lead to poorer performance in school, behavioral issues, a lower sense of well-being in adulthood, and fewer quality relationships as adults. Haddon's birth required forceps, which resulted in dyspraxia and cerebral palsy and some minor brain damage. Dyspraxia is associated with language problems and often some degree of difficulty with thought and perception. It seems clear that Haddon displayed characteristics of both a conduct disorder and oppositional defiant disorder. Conduct disorder, according to the CDC, is characterized as being aggressive in a way that causes harm, such as bullying, fighting, or being cruel to animals. Oppositional defiant disorder is characterized by often being angry or losing one's temper, refusing to comply with rules, being resentful or spiteful, deliberately annoying others or becoming annoyed by others, and blaming others for one's own mistakes. According to the Academy, um, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, oppositional defiant disorder tends to occur in families where there's prevalent substance abuse or mood disorders. Further, children with oppositional defiant disorder have subtle differences in their prefrontal cortex. Both Bradfield and Haddon displayed signs of antisocial personalities as children. Flavia described Bradfield as mean as a rattlesnake and, that, and Haddon as being born evil. Haddon once told Flavia that Bradfield had sexually assaulted him, but Flavia didn't believe him. Children do not typically make things like this up without coaching. If you look at the number of false sexual assaults that are reported to the police, it's something like 2%. So you can imagine that with children, it's going to be very low like that. Haddon was a manipulative liar, but this seems like it might have been true. Sibling sexual abuse is... Um, one of the most common forms of familial sexual abuse, and it can cause more damage than sexual assault by a stranger. Children who abuse other children have likely been abused themselves or have been exposed to pornography or are the victims of neglect. I don't think it's a leap to assume that something nefarious was happening in the Clark household, whether it was Haddon Sr. or Flavia who was doing the abusing is the question. If you remember the stories about Jeff's children, especially of his eldest son, John, it's clear that there was abuse happening in that household. But where did the abuse begin? Jeff's children were not allowed to see, speak to, be spoken to about their great-grandmother, Edith. Was Edith Silas's wife abusive? Is that where the cycle of abuse began? Haddon's mother would dress Haddon in girls' clothing, and this is a predilection that would follow Haddon throughout his life. When Haddon was a teenager, he was caught peeping and was charged by the police. 
Voyeurism is a distortion of the courtship process, the part where you're searching for a partner. When Flavia consulted a therapist about Haddon's voyeurism, the therapist advised her not to challenge Haddon over it, that he would grow out of it. Today, we know that ignoring voyeurism is um, voyeurism is very serious and that voyeurism is a very serious crime that can lead to more serious crimes if it's not treated. Most voyeurs report having a negative relationship with their fathers, and 36% of voyeurs and exhibitionists report having been physically abused. According to Laws O'Donohue, Laws and O'Donohue and Sexual Deviance Theory and Treatment, there are three factors central to voyeurism. The first is hypercathexis, which is a preoccupation with visual function. The second is postnatal experience involving early visual exchanges with mother. Three is early trauma during the first or second year of life that cripples the relationship between mother and child. Such trauma is thought to result in pregenital fixation, sexual identity problems, and impairment of the ego and superego. According to Freud, the id is the primitive part of the self that contains sexual and aggressive drives and hidden memories. The ego is the realistic part of the self that mediates the desires of the id and the superego, and the superego is the moral conscious. Remember that in 1983, Haddon moved in with Jeff. Um, he was thrown out for masturbating in front of the children. Exhibitionism is another disorder of the courtship process. And much like, uh, it's much like voyeurism, except that it's considered an obsessive compulsive paraphilic disorder in which usually a man derives sexual gratification from exposing his genitals often while masturbating. Exhibitionism in front of unwilling adults is bad enough on its own, but let alone exposing oneself in front of young children. Haddon would later admit to Jesus that he performed necrophilia and cannibalism on some of his victims. And you might be asking, how does one look at a dead body and think, I got to have me some of that? Well, often necrophilia arises out of faulty operant conditioning. Think of Pavlov's dogs. But in Haddon's case, I think Freud's interpretation of necrophilia is more appropriate. Quote, unconscious suppressed hostility toward parental figures and sadistic impulses to explore the mother's body, end quote, along with Haddon's, quote, helplessness and resistlessness, end quote. Further, some psychoanalysts theorize that necrophile's concept of sexuality is somewhat infantile. This would make sense for Haddon as his mental capacity was very low. Haddon also claimed to partake in cannibalism with some of his victims. Most cannibals progress to cannibalism after necrophilia as a way to keep part, the, part of the victim with them forever. However, for Haddon, this may not be the case. Haddon always had a penchant for eating disgusting things. He would chug beef blood. He would eat rotten and moldy food. It seems likely that Haddon had some variation of pica or pica, um, persistent eating of items with no nutritional value. And often pica is comorbid with other mental disorders like schizophrenia. Haddon was diagnosed with schizophrenia. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, schizophrenia is a serious mental illness that affects how a person thinks, feels, and behaves. People with schizophrenia may seem like they have lost touch with reality, which, which causes significant distress for the individual, their family members, and friends. If left untreated, the symptoms of schizophrenia can be persistent and disabling. In addition to schizophrenia, Haddon had damage to the left temporal lobe of the brain. A reduction in volume is associated with individuals who are overly aggressive and individuals who have disordered personalities. Where that damage game came from, one can only guess. The damage may have occurred during his forcep birth, could be as a result of physical abuse from his father, or as a result of childhood maltreatment. 
Both Bradfield and Haddon Clark may have been born evil, but their abusive alcoholic parents and horrible upbringing certainly did not help matters. Both brothers exhibited some of the telltale traits of serial killers, childhood physical sexual abuse, isolation, neglect, genetic predisposition towards addiction, and then in Haddon's case, voyeurism, cruelty to animals, and a head injury. It may be impossible to predict who will become a serial killer, but in hindsight, it's clear that the Clark brothers were doomed from the start. This has been Cannibal Brothers, a production of SKB Studios and Serial Killer Brains podcast. If you enjoyed this series, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, review, and share with your friends and family. See my website at www.skbpod.com for references, music credits, and for my blog. Thanks for joining me on my quest to understand evil. Until next time. in love or whatever.